You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. Today, our guest is Evan Greenberg, Chief Executive Officer of Chubb Insurance. Evan is a member of the President's Task Force on Economic Recovery and is the past chairman of the U.S.-China Business Council. We'll talk with Evan about the global economic recovery now underway, the state of U.S.-China relations, and the role of public-private cooperation in matters of health, commerce, and social capital. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Evan Greenberg, welcome to The Reopening. We're delighted to have you. Chubb Insurance has operations in 54 countries. You do business around the world. Could you give us your view of the global economy and who's recovering, who's not? What's your view at this point? Yeah, you know, the global economy is obviously operating at a slow pace. Um, Trade has been dramatically impacted. People aren't traveling. Shipping has slowed way down. And, you know, the world is in various stages of reopening. Asia is probably the furthest ahead, and we notice it in our business. It is, you know, most countries are opening, um, and in some degree back to normal, though no one's fully back to normal. China is also, it was the first to close down, the first to reopen, and is coming back relatively strongly. But it's still tepid in historic terms. Europe, Europe, most of our offices are all open, but Europe is very slow in the reemergence and for economic activity to begin back up. Latin America is, for where we do business, is the region most heavily impacted Mm -hmm. um, at the moment. The virus is rampant, the health crisis is not under control, In some countries, they're in various stages of opening up only because people are suffering economically so much. They can't stay locked down, but they're in chaos. And finally, in the U.S., as we all see, we're opening back up slowly, but the economy has a lot of damage to recover from. When I look forward, what do I imagine? We're not going to eliminate the virus and not until we have a vaccine and it is widely available and that will be sometime if we're lucky it'll be sometime in 2021 and probably towards the latter part of the first half in the meantime we can't stay locked down around the world economies when they're closed create so much suffering and people need to they need to make a living and so therefore the healthcare system in developed countries has had a chance to catch up and put in place the infrastructure to manage the infection. And we have better testing and tracing in developed countries and some developing countries. And so we have an ability to control the level of infection while we open up, though naturally infection rises. At the same time, part of that control is going to be around social distancing and limiting the number of people who can be together. And that'll continue to weigh heavily on 
industries such as travel industry and most consumer services related industries around the world. Countries where governments, where the state of governance in a country at the government level, at the political level is poor, where healthcare infrastructure is poor, they're going to be wrestling with extreme chaos and difficulty between a health crisis and an economic crisis. Your point is well taken. The virus is with us. This is just one more risk we've got to manage in our lives. It's one we've learned a lot about, but we still don't. it's still novel. We still don't know everything about it. You're in the risk management business, so natural that you should be thinking about this in a pretty deep manner. We do. And in insurance, we're kind of a reflection of society's activities as a whole, because we ensure exposures that people are, and businesses and other entities are exposed to. And that's through economic activity, social, health, science, the natural environment, and the legal environment. And so we have a chance to see it all. And you know, beyond the economic and the health, there are social consequences that emerge that will also weigh on us as we go forward. Social unrest, because people are suffering, arises. Populism around the world, you can see it growing because people are suffering and they want quick answers and solutions. Nationalism and protectionism, Protect your own and beggar thy neighbor. And you begin to see those trends growing and scapegoating to blame others and, and deflect. The economy will be some time coming back <clears throat> in spite of all the valiant efforts by central banks to provide support and governments to provide support. Evan, you've said that insurers can't insure the entire American economy. It's impossible. But how are you reimagining yourself as an industry going forward, thinking about coronavirus and other possibly endemic diseases that we're going to be living with? You know, the insurance industry will pay out between the liability side and the asset side of our balance sheets. This will cost the industry, you know, circa $100 billion plus anyway, not insignificant. Imagine where the losses come from. Individual people and related to their health, accident and health, life insurance, travel, because travel has been curtailed, workers' compensation for those who were first responders or were healthcare workers. And so in the course of employment, they became ill or emotionally damaged with what they've experienced. Imagine all the credit-related exposures, surety and insuring trade and receivables, and where governments abrogate their responsibilities and they've borrowed money or invested in projects. And then you get to business interruption, businesses that bought insurance for this and are shut down, the entertainment industry, the show industry or certain corporations that could buy that kind of coverage. So the industry from many different angles is incurring substantial loss. And then think the liability side, let a th thousand flowers bloom. 
all the lawsuits that will take place because directors and officers should have known and predicted and protected the company better. Or employment practices, liability, you discriminated against older people coming back onto the job. And so lawsuits that will be in the thousands across the globe, and so therefore will incur loss to insurers. What cannot be insured easily and can't be done by the private sector alone, we don't have the balance sheet, is business interruption insurance broadly offered to all businesses that if you're shut down as a result of a pandemic, that the loss of income or the extra expense you would have would be paid because that's fundamentally insuring the whole economy. The industry has hundreds of billions of capital and surplus to support the risks it's taken on. And this by itself, the US economy shut down for a quarter is $4 trillion. Well, how could the industry insure for that? But there are future constructs of public-private partnership that could protect the economy financially and do a, a better job of insuring it than was done. However, the most important is not a financial construct. It is that we have the medical infrastructure and we have the wherewithal to keep pandemics from spreading again and to control them quickly when they break out so we don't have to shut the economy down. That's the answer. The answer is not trying to provide financial support when you do. That's a poor second cousin. But if I'm a business going forward now, you've got to think that this has got to be one of your top priorities is figuring out what do I do when and if there's a second wave, when and if we have a future disease that we can't control, that we don't know anything about, and we face the same situation over and over again. You're correct. And... And we have proposals we have put together that we are working quietly with the government on, we're not grandstanding about it, where we could offer in a public-private partnership where the government takes the tail risk because the government has the balance sheet for the trillions or the, the many hundreds of billions that the industry doesn't have. The industry could take risk. And we could take risk and we could offer insurance more broadly to small and mid and large companies and provide a partial solution. We could administer the program as well. And then when it exceeds a certain dollar threshold that we can handle with our capital base, then the government takes the rest of the exposure. And you know how you charge for it, and what kind of rate of return should the government get, et cetera, is all for the future. But we have proposals like that, and we're quietly talking to the administration and to Congress about those. Well, Evan, throughout your comments, you're, you're observing new ways of cooperation. And I want to pull out a couple things that you mentioned. First, you mentioned there was good cooperation among central banks in their response. You mentioned poor cooperation among trade ministries, where we got immediately into new barriers and beggar than neighbor policies, I think you're indicating that health cooperation is a high priority to deal with the next pandemic. And then you have the insurance consortium with government cooperation as a new model. Can you tie those together? Because I, th I think you're onto something here. You know, look, we're in a world today where globalization 
is not popular and where the notion of multilateral institutions and cooperation are not in favor. And yet, ironically, when I look at the health crisis and I look at the economic crisis, both of those would be solved or mitigated to a great degree with better cooperation across the globe. I start with the health. I don't know how we arm ourselves to avoid more outbreak of COVID-19 globally and to bring it down and at the same time open up travel and trade if we don't have cross-border cooperation to share information, to put in place global surveillance, to put in place minimum standards we can all accept of each other so that we could create certainty. And that requires both multilateral and bilateral cooperation that is just not existing to the degree it should. The same with not only discovery of vaccine, but production of vaccine. Mm -hmm. And we're becoming too nationalistic as we approach that. When I think about recovery of the economy, the two largest economies in the world, China and the United States, there is an area where we could cooperate, just like I believe in the healthcare areas I mentioned to manage pandemic exposure, particularly COVID-19 now. China and the US should be cooperating, not throwing stones at each other and blaming each other. Sure, we have differences. We should be putting those aside and in both of those areas, we could lead a multilateral effort. And I believe the world would be better served. Do you worry that in creating public-private partnerships that the government will be too involved in business? You know, there, I always want government involvement in business with a light hand. I don't think you mindlessly wander in to an increased role for government. But government has a role to play when the private sector mechanism can't work by itself to solve a problem. And in this case, the private sector can't by itself solve the pandemic-related business interruption insurance problem. For the reason I said, don't have the balance sheet wherewithal. We have other examples of that where the public-private partnership in insurance has worked reasonably well, and we do do it with a light hand. Terrorism insurance after 9-11, the government's backstop helped to give the confidence and the certainty to begin to create a terrorism insurance marketplace. And it has grown since then. Private sector's wherewithal has increased. An area like crop insurance, to be able to manage the affordability question so that all farmers would buy crop insurance. And it has worked well to protect the financial wherewithal of farmers and the food source system has worked well. Flood insurance is an example where it has not worked well and needs to be fixed, unintended consequences. In this case, if we're gonna provide better financial protection, the only ones who have the balance sheet to support that in its totality is the government. Now, you're part of the president's task force on looking at COVID-related issues and reopening and business. What are you learning that you can share with us from that experience? 
frankly speaking, the task force has not been very active. You know, beyond the first flurry, it has been pretty dormant. I wish government had engaged business to a greater degree in the management and the solutions to how to handle this nationally. I think businesses experience and capabilities with logistics management, yeah. manufacturing, I believe we would have been more efficient had we engaged business. And by the way, in my own mind, the military, because the military's capabilities in moving building systems and moving yeah. major supplies, because this is all supply chain set up, whether it is mm -hmm. testing, whether it is tracing, whether it is PPE related, could have all moved much more efficiently and quickly in my mind if we'd engage business and the military in their roles for managing this. I mean, that's how we get things done in America. We put our best foot forward. And that's the resources that we have. We could have done this with a wartime footing. I don't think it would have been that complicated. Along those lines, though, going forward, as you're thinking about disruptions to the United States and to the world, what do business leaders need to do to think about how we can be better prepared for things like this? There are a few things. And, you know, you have to stick with what you believe, whether it is popular at the moment or it is not. And you have to continue advocating. So on one hand, I think what business can do, coming out of this, there is a question, and we've seen it. And it's a vulnerability within globalization and where you distribute processing and manufacturing, and that is supply chain resilience. Not in a political sense, you need to depoliticize it. But supply chain resilience, you know, the word resilience speaks to availability and flexibility, particularly in times of stress or under stressed conditions, stress points. I think there are lessons that come out of this about not just critical supplies, but what we will define as critical supplies, particularly in the medical area. But beyond that, when basic economic goods need to be provided and their availability, we've learned about vulnerabilities. And so supply chain resilience, and that means, you know, where you have choke points, where you have over-concentration, and I think we will balance absolute cost efficiency against resilience as we go forward. We learn from that, and that's a natural maturing process, and I think it's a, a good one. Yeah, I agree. This will be a healthy learning experience. Obviously, this was a, an unusual stress on many supply chains because it was global. It's not like an earthquake or flood or something that tends to be regional. If we don't obscure it, and the clarity with over-politicalization. We can't over-politicize Yes. That's the danger in it. As long as firms can look at it at the firm level, because that's where this happens, where you need to make sure your suppliers are not too concentrated. I mean, that's the, that's the real core of this. But it has to be done at the firm level, and it, you're right, it can't be done on political grounds. And it's not just concentration of suppliers. It's you know, you're thinking about availability and a, a constant availability 
because we're also in much more of a just-in-time economy when it comes to manufacturing. And so that creates a certain brittleness and risk within the system. So that's what you're gonna manage around as well. You know, secondly, you know, what can business do? I think it's to recognize the world that was unlocked with globalization and the capability and the economic growth, broad-based growth that it unleashed. And we remember that. I think mm -hmm. that going backwards that way is a mistake. There are many issues and many problems with the global trading system. And the problems we can wax on endlessly. At the same time, there are many strengths and benefits that we shouldn't forget and that we should be advocating for while we address the problems and the weak points that have arisen. Multilateral, a more liberal world order, rules-based trading system, working with those who have common purpose, a set of rules that allow all to thrive and where a few can't game it against others, because then it's like a poker game. Um, if the rules, <laughs> the, the, the administration of those rules aren't equal, well, who's putting their money in the pot? Yeah. And so, you know, I think business, even though it's not popular, particularly, in the United States now and in some other countries, business shouldn't cower, shouldn't quiet our voice. You've got to advocate and in a rational way and someone has to bear witness to it because I can guarantee you, we will wander off the track, it will be to our detriment and then we'll say, woe is us, what did we do? And we'll be a lot of years repairing. Evan Greenberg, you've been incredibly generous with your time today. Thank you very much for this talk and this conversation. We're thrilled to have you with us, and we hope to be able to talk to you again really soon. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Thank you guys. Thank you. Have fun. Stay healthy. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.